Our first scripture reading for today's sermon is found in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, which it looks like is on page 724. Yeah, 724, Isaiah chapter 61, and I'm actually going to read the first seven verses uh, inclusively. Page 724. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 7. This is the passage, as we've been saying, that Jesus appropriated, that Jesus claimed for himself in Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They, that is those who grieve in Zion, will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, his beauty. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens, that is foreigners, will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so, they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Our next reading is found in 2 Corinthians on page 1121, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll be reading the first 12 verses of this chapter. Page 1121. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. One of the really great passages from Paul's letters. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. 
We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Let's pray. O Lord God, we thank you for this promise Because more often than not, we are aware of the death that is at work in us. More often than not, we are aware of our weakness, of our confusion, of our blindness, of a sense of futility in the things that we do. Lord God, we thank you that it is in weakness that you show yourself to be strong, that it is in foolishness, so-called that you show yourself to be wiser than any of the wise men and women of this age. Lord God, by this same spirit, would you empower our brother Mark as he brings your word to us and open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Yuri. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 61. We'll be there for a while. And then we'll finish up near the end of the message with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Jesus Christ has commissioned his blood-bought, spirit-born people to be priests of the true worship of the one true and living God in spirit and in truth, 
and ministers of a new covenant, a better covenant, established in his own blood. One more time, Jesus Christ has commissioned his blood-bought, spirit-born people to be priests of the true worship of the one true and living God in spirit and in truth and ministers of a new and better covenant established in his own blood. This morning, I hope we'll see that what we frequently and familiarly call the Great Commission, which we can all locate in chapter 28 of Matthew's Gospel, was foretold and foreshadowed by the prophet Isaiah here in his chapter 61, some 700 years earlier. When I say some 700 years earlier, I mean some 700 years before the first advent of Jesus Christ, but also 700 years before he issued his great commandment or his great commission to his followers on Mount Olivet from which he departed. And ever since he has been praying for them and for us. So before we go any further, I'd, I'd like for us to think about that position of Christ at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf as a first and foundational truth for everything that we do. Jesus Christ departed from Mount Olivet after his exemplary and perfectly righteous life, after his perfect and perfectly satisfactory death as our substitute on the cross, and after his unique and justifying resurrection, he departed from Mount Olivet to return to his Father and our Father, and he has been praying for us, ever interceding for us since. Now, where do we get that idea that he's praying for us, that he's ever interceding for us? We, we get it, of course, from the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, where in verse 34 we read, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So not only did Jesus die for us, not only was he raised for us, now he prays for us. And if Jesus Christ himself is praying for us at this very moment, what does that say about our standing with God? It says, if we struggle in this life, he will deliver us. It says, even if and when we die, we will live with him. We've noted before that the book of Hebrews is a wonderful exposition on the new covenant and the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ both of which do away with, once and for all, all other covenants, all other claims to priesthood, and all other bases for a right relationship to God. And, and particularly in Hebrews chapter 7, seems to be in many ways the heart of this exposition. exposition. And there, from verse 22, we read these words, Jesus is guarantor of a better covenant, that is better than the first covenant that God made with his people Israel. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, watch it now, since he always lives to make intercession for them, for us. 
In other words, Jesus Christ himself not only saves us by his all-sufficient and sacrificial death on the cross and his justifying resurrection, which he does, but he also keeps on keeping us saved by his high priestly praying, his ongoing and forever intercession for us before his Father and ours. And Isaiah 61 foretells and foreshadows the headship of the true and eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61 foretells and foreshadows the new covenant between God and human beings made only, always, and forever in Jesus Christ's own blood. Isaiah 61 also foretells and foreshadows a time which has now come when all of God's people, having been brought by, rather bought by the blood of Jesus and anointed for adoption and ministry by the Holy Spirit, become with him priests of the Lord Yahweh and ministers of our God. So that's why our title this morning is Priests of the Lord or Priests of the Lord Yahweh and Ministers of our God, taken from our passage. Just as surely as Isaiah 61 envisions a Messiah in the Koine Greek of the New Testament, a Christ who would be and now has been, quoting here now, anointed by the Spirit of the Lord God who was and now is upon him, that same Spirit has anointed us to join him in his life and in his work. How can we know that? Well, as briefly as I know how, we know from, first of all, Acts chapter 1. I forgot to change my slide again. I need to work on that. From verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 10 days, actually, as it turned out. And where did they hear about this promised Holy Spirit from Jesus? Well, for starters, from the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, which are all about the ministry of the Holy Spirit based upon what Jesus was then doing and would do. Verse 15 of John chapter 14, if you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And finally, John chapter 16, verses 12, 13, and 14. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear it or bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak 
and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. And we know that this anointing idea is in fact coming from the Holy Spirit and is the Holy Spirit, and he is for us too, as well as for those who received the promise initially. From 1 John chapter, chapter 2 and verse 20, we read these words, but you, speaking to the church, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you or, or, or remain in you. Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The Spirit isn't listed here because the Spirit is the one causing the abiding. The Spirit is the one who abides in us and with us, um, representing the Father and the Son. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Then finally in verse 4, uh, chapter 4 rather, verse 13 and following, of 1 John, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then verse, um, verse uh, 6b of chapter 5, And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Thus endeth the introduction of the ministry of God's word for this morning. I'd like to ask you to pray with me as we pray together, asking Jesus to continue interceding for us and allowing us to know him in Jesus' name. Lord, we come before you now just briefly and ask that you would speak to us in a distinct way. Continue to draw those of us to yourself who have not yet come to the knowledge of the light of the glory of Christ in the gospel. For those of us who have plateaued in our growth, Lord, I pray that you would kickstart that growth this morning, that you would, by your word and by your spirit, restart our and, and renew our relationship with you. And for those of us who are toiling uh, hard and we are doing our best to follow after you, I, I pray, Lord, that you would give us hope. Give us love. Help us to abide. And we know that abiding is the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're asking, Spirit, for you to make known to us even more personally your power and your presence and your ongoing provision for your people here known as Bethesda Church. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done on our behalf in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and Savior indeed, according to your word in this passage, the Savior of the world. We thank you for saving us, literally, to be biblical about it, for choosing us. 
We do not deserve it. We, it is not because we merited it in any way. It's not because we were brighter or stronger or smarter or uh, in any way more desirable, but only because of your grace. And we thank you. And may your grace continue in our hearing now, in our speaking now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, the, first, the first thing that I would like for us to think about in terms of a, a point of truth um, is really a summary of the last three weeks, running into this message to uh, then move us forward into the next portion of Isaiah chapter 61. And this is the way I've expressed it, the anointed priesthood of Jesus Christ. Just a few words, but there's a lot of weight there. The anointed priesthood of Jesus Christ, foretold and foreshadowed by Isaiah, is an essential starting place for receiving God's commission or Jesus' commission and being his people in our place and time. One more time. The anointed and priesthood, the anointed priesthood of Jesus Christ, foretold and foreshadowed by Isaiah. Is an, eternal is an essential starting place for receiving Jesus' commission and being his people in our time. I don't feel that we need to do so much here because we've been addressing this first verse of Isaiah 61 and this first truth for three Sundays now, including the first bit of our message this morning, and we'll see more of it as we continue. Uh, just suffices to say, at least for now, that in some real way, Jesus Christ has extended his anointing, and his priesthood to us and through us. That is, if we are his true people. The Holy Spirit is not only with us, but the Holy Spirit is in us. And John calls the Holy Spirit himself the anointing. And though both Jesus and his work are unique, in some real way, Jesus shares with us this anointing of the Holy Spirit, this priesthood, him being our one, our only, and our eternal great high priest, and this outreaching and this keeping work of praying and going and proclaiming and baptizing and sending that we now call the Great Commission, he gives to us, as he extends to us, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, this priesthood of which we are now a part. So, the anointed priesthood of Jesus Christ, foretold and foreshadowed by Isaiah, is an essential starting place for receiving Jesus' commission and being his people in our time and place. And so in verses 1 and 2, we read these words, The Spirit of the Lord God, Yahweh, is upon me, because the Lord Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who, who mourn. And my suggestion, my assertion is that Jesus now does this work continually as that high priest, as that minister of God through us. His work continues in us and through us. 
So then the second thing that I'd like for us to talk about and, and spend some time processing here is that as part of his anointed and anointing priesthood, Jesus Christ will restore and is restoring the true worship of the one true and living God in, among, and through his people. And that's what the first half of Isaiah chapter 61 is all about. It's about restoring true worship. And that is true worship of the one true and living God, singular, one true and living God. So what we're about to look at still speaks to Messiah's work, and the text is still speaking about the work of the anointed one in and among his people. Look at verse 3. Two, grant to those who mourn in Zion. So he's continuing on the series, right? The spirit of the Lord God Yahweh is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to, verse 3, grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. I love the crown of beauty instead of ashes phrasing that the NIV does that Yuri um, read a bit ago. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. But now we've moved into a new thing signified by the phrase to grant to those who mourn in Zion. So he, he doesn't just state a specific task. He, he, he states both a task and an audience or, or, or recipients. To, verse 13, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. That's a very particular group of people. And so it notes a shift in the prophecy. Every preceding promise was more general. This one is specific to a particular group of people, namely those who mourn in Zion. Clearly, the nation of Israel, or more accurately, the truly worshiping, truly mourning Jewish people who mourn over the shattered temple and would be responsible to pick up the pieces of and rebuild the temple, these are the ones he's speaking to here when he says, to those who mourn in Zion. But we've made reference over the last while to an important concept that once we begin to see it in Scripture, we can never unsee it. Sometimes that's a bad thing. We see something bad or horrendous, we can never unsee it. But here's a, a case in which we can see something that's good and we can't unsee it after we see it, and it's a good thing. It's a reminder that God is at work here in the text of his scripture. And that, of course, is the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy or the dynamic fulfillment of scripture. And the, this, the, these, uh, these two very closely related concepts, the dynamic fulfillment of Scripture and the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy, speaks to the observation that prophecy and or Scripture often looks forward to a number of fulfillments, usually one that is more immediate in history, contemporary to its revelation, like the 7th century B.C. for Isaiah and the nation of Israel at that time, Another that might come later in history, so Isaiah speaking to that, that day and time then, then to another event, and then perhaps even to another as far as eternity future. And I mention it now because here we almost certainly have an historical reference 
of the rebuilding of the temple during the period now called the second temple period of Jewish history. But it's also, without any question, a more futuristic reference to the renewal of the true worship of the one true and living God that the Holy Spirit would bring based on Jesus's ministry. So we have Isaiah's day and there's a meaning to them that closer to their time, uh, the, the temple will be rebuilt and they will be uh, they will be called to be a part of that work, but that's not the final ultimate work of restoring true worship. There will be something else, and that something else is Jesus's ministry among us and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we noted how important it is in this text in particular, Isaiah 61, to rightly identify who the personal pronouns refer to. For example, in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who is me? Who does me refer to? Because the Lord, Yahweh, has anointed me. Who is that who's speaking there? Well, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, it's speaking to Jesus and he is responding uh, to the, the Spirit of the Lord being placed upon him. So who is the me of verse 1? Messiah, Jesus Christ. We, we've seen that over the last couple of weeks, and so I think we're probably pretty settled about that, uh, that that, that is um, uh, both easy and right to, to see in the text and to read into the text, especially with Jesus's claiming of it himself in Luke chapter 4. Okay, that, that's an easy one. Here's, here's a harder one. Who is the they of verses 3 and 4? Who is the they? So if you look in the middle of verse 3, you see that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord Yahweh, that he might be glorified, may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Well, first, for sure, they are the Jews of the 7th and 6th century BC who first received this prophecy as well as the second Templars, Isaiah, uh, rather Ezra and Nehemiah, for example, who would rebuild the temple in their day. But also it's us in the true church who would be used by the Holy Spirit to renew and restore true worship for all peoples over all the earth. And that is after Jesus did his work and the Holy Spirit established the church. So you see these different times throughout history where this one prophecy is driving the action. Second Temple, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, Pentecost and the Church, and then us today anointed for the same work of priesthood and ministry. Okay, so here's here's a little tougher one. Who in verse 5 are the strangers? The strangers or uh, uh, the foreigners. Those are referring, referring to the same group, I think. Strangers and foreigners. Hmm. Well... Following the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy principle, if we look at Isaiah's day, or at the day the temple was being rebuilt, rather, which is about a hundred, a little bit over a hundred years later, it started with Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, then it's probably speaking of foreign workers who would bring from Lebanon, for example, cedars to be used in the rebuilding of the temple, gold and other materials that were used for the rebuilding of the temple. And those were brought from foreign lands by foreign people 
into Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the temple. That's probably the first stop on this dynamic fulfillment of the prophecy. Then in Jesus' time, strangers were there in Jerusalem all over the place. It was a bustling um, center for commerce and religion, too. Uh, Certainly it refers to that time as well. But I would suggest to you that probably... It's not really the fulfillment because we won't, be, we won't encounter the fulfillment until the new heavens and the new earth. That's always true for all the prophecies. Um, but there's an interim prophecy fulfillment, I think, here that we need to be very much aware of. And that is after the church was established, now we are here in our place and time and we are being anointed to do this very work in our place and time. We don't have any other place and we don't have any other time. It's ours to do. And we are to join him, and guess what? We're from all over the world. We would be strangers and foreigners. And the Great Commission was to go out and baptize from among what? All the nations. This is a reference to all the nations coming together to renew the proper, or I should say, true worship of God and uh, established by the Holy Spirit, the true church who would be used by him to renew and restore true worship for all peoples all over the earth. And finally, who is the you? If you'll look in verse 6, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord Yahweh. They will speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now, admittedly, there's quite a, quite a, um, a playing uh, back and forth between you and they, um, but I think, I think that Isaiah is speaking into the future to those who would be applying this scripture to their place and time, including us. We are the ones who will be called priests of the Lord Yahweh. We are the ones that, that strangers and foreigners will be tending to our flocks, and we are the strangers and foreigners as well. We are the people of God. Israel is the people of God, and the people of God are the you in this passage. And by the way, the you is always plural. It can't refer to Messiah from from verse 1. The you in every case here is plural. All y'alls, right? Who is all y'all? All y'all is all y'all. We are now in the place of being priests and ministers to our God And we are responding to the calling of Christ to fulfill the mission that he has given us, even the Great Commission. So there's a third thing, and uh, for those who are keeping time, this is the last point, so that's the good news. Um, and, And here it is. The true people of God, first Israel and the Jews, remember the gospel is for the Jews first, and also for the Gentiles or the Greeks. So the true people of God, first Israel, the Jews, and also for the church, 
will oversee the renewing of true worship, both in Zion and to the uttermost parts of the earth among all peoples. And we see that in verse 5. This is all about the renewal of uh, true worship, the restoration of true worship. Uh, But it has a twist here that we'll see in just a minute. Verse 5. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord Yahweh. They strangers and foreigners who are standing and tending your flocks, who are your plowmen and vine dressers, they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. So did you see that change? Went from you to they. Well, well, who's the they there? Well, we've talked quite a bit about the people of God, Israel, and the people of God, the church. And there will be a day when there is no distinction between. We are now one in Christ. In the new heavens and in the new earth, we will all stand before God as his children and engage in worship together forever. And I think they are those in the new heavens and the new earth who worship God in the true worship of the one true and living God. And it's true because there is no longer any taint of sin. There is no longer any taint of selfishness or self. There is no uh, longer any sort of distraction. Um, We will be worshiping him truly in spirit and in truth. And and this passage is all, all about that. So the true people of God, first Israel, the Jews, and also the church, will oversee the renewing of true worship, both in Zion and to the uttermost parts of the earth among all peoples. Now I'd like to ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're almost done. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is an application, I believe, of the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. So this was approaching 2,000 years ago now, and and yet it's still being fulfilled today. Don't, uh, or or at least try not to underestimate the power of the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy and or scripture, because we see it right here. Is this not also us? Paul was writing these verses probably in mid-60 AD, so 64, 65 maybe as early as 60, but probably not quite that early. And uh, he was writing to the church at Corinth here, who, who, which was a great church and it was an awful church. Um, it had great things going on and had terrible things going on. Uh, and he was continually having to, to um, probably in three different letters, uh, having to correct and, and, and to help them along. Um, and yet, does this not sound like, like us today? But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Okay, so I want to stop there and just just note verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Repeatedly, the Spirit through Paul makes this statement. We do not lose heart. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. That means our bodies, our physical, mortal, 
fallible, frail, sin-laden bodies to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And I I don't know about you, but I have a visceral allergy reaction to pain. I want to avoid it with everything in me. If I know something's going to be painful and I have an out, I'll take the out. That's probably true for most human beings. We don't like to be hurt. We don't like pain. And yet, if we believe God's word and our hope is truly in Christ, pain is often the way to freedom. It's often the way to Christ. It's often the way of the cross that leads to salvation. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. If our flesh doesn't die, the life of Jesus cannot be manifested. That's the point. That's the awful point. That's the glorious point. Because our flesh, I don't know if you've noticed, doesn't want to die. Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the priesthood, the ministry that Jesus has given us following him. So our central truth one more time, Jesus has commissioned his blood-bought, spirit-born people to be priests of the true worship of the one true and living God in spirit and in truth and ministers of a new and better covenant established in his own blood. Isaiah said it, and it's still happening today because of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we once again thank you for this, your word. We pray, Lord, that you would propel us forward into the future that you have for us, that you would continue to work in us and through us for your glory, by your grace and mercy, spirit and love, for the good of others. Give us the mind of Christ, Lord, the mind of Christ that thinks of you and thinks of others before we think of ourselves. And that even if we are called to give our lives, we will will call you blessed and we will hope in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, for this prophecy of Isaiah, for his his faithfulness to, to write it down, for your spirit who moved him, and also for your spirit that informs us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to have on our minds as we leave this place the rest of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us as we leave this place with the knowledge that what we can see is passing, it's transient, it's temporary, but the unseen, the spiritual, what you are doing in our lives by your spirit and your word Though we can't see it with our eyes, we know that it is eternal. It leads to you. May we find our rest in you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.